This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. Walking Each Other Home is an exploration of the many ways we cultivate wisdom, compassion, and love in our lives. Mirabai Bush talks with some of her many diverse friends about what they're learning now from their spiritual paths and practices. If you would like to support this podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Mirabai. Hi, everyone. There's a special podcast this week on the Be Here Now Network guest podcasts, and it's uh, Lenwood Heyman, who was in conversation with me on my last podcast, and this time he is in conversation with an old friend of his, Ron Bell, who's a pastor at Black United Methodist Church in Minneapolis, where, of course, recently was the uh, trial of Derek Chauvin. Um, the, The subject is helping us heal in the midst of trauma, and I found it amazing and insightful and really loving and really helpful. So I think it might be for you too. So give it a try on guest podcasts on the Be Here Now Network. Thanks. Welcome. Welcome, everyone. <laughs> this is Mirabai Bush, and this is the Walking Each Other Home podcast in which we're exploring the many ways in which people wake up to the spirit and how each of our stories helps others wake up as we walk home together. Neem Karoli Baba, who's my teacher, said, mm. sub-ek, the spirit is all one. But the paths to getting there are as diverse as we are. So we're exploring some of them. And today we're going to talk to Rhonda McGee, who is professor of law at the University of San Francisco and an internationally recognized thought and practice leader focused on integrating mindfulness into higher education, law, and social change work. Rhonda is a student of Buddhism, grew up Christian, has been a student of Buddhist and other wisdom teachers, including Norman Fisher, Joan Halifax, and John Kabat-Zinn. And she has trained as a mindfulness teacher at the UMass Center for Mindfulness. She was chairperson of the Board of Contemplative Mind and a fabulous chairperson and a fellow of Mind and Life Institute the, <laughs> on the Board of Advisors to the UMass Center for Mindfulness and former chair of the Board of 
Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute, another organization I love. And her book is a intensely bestseller, <laughs> I don't know what the word is, um, called The Inner Work of Racial Justice, mm-hmm. Healing Ourselves and Transforming Our Communities Through Mindfulness. And this book is so good. It's, it's you know, I, I just mm-hmm. read it for the second time. It's so comprehensive in that it looks at all these issues we're going through from so many different angles. And it's, it's one of the few statements or books or it's very kind. I think all through it, it's so clear that, that loving kindness lives within you because the book is really kind to the reader and kind to all the people you talk about. And it's also has quite a few practices. So it's not just, there's so many books we've been reading about, about social justice, but this book really gives you practices so you can look inside and bring it to life in the most important ways. So, um, yes, yes, it's right. Um, <laughs> well, thank you so very much. Mm-hmm. It's so good to be mm-hmm. <laughs> your old friends. That's why we're laughing a lot. <laughs> and well, <laughs> yes, yes. Um, I have some questions, but do you want to say anything before we start just about, you know, uh, why did you write this book? Why is it important right now? (laughs) Hmm. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. So, so very much. Um, It's, it's always, it's always really an honor and a joy to be with you. Um, And, uh, and it's a particular joy and um, it's got that bittersweet quality for us to be together talking about this particular issue and theme right now, you know, in 2021 um, in the United States, we are really in the midst of uh, kind of a, another, like a point of inflection, if you will, in our culture around um, who we are as a political community. We have an impeachment going on again uh, in Washington, D.C. Um, but underneath that is once again this, this you know, really pitched battle over, you know, the soul in a certain sense of this country mm-hmm. and yeah. over what we mean when we have used the language of democracy so how multicultural, how multiracial do we mean that to be? Uh, even today, that's still contested. So I, um, I wrote the book in part because as a law professor, I've known that the struggle over who we are as a country has never ceased, really. And the, the, the kind of challenge around the challenge posed by racism and white supremacy to our nation is really, really always just beneath the surface, just right there to be tapped into when times are tough. And um, I didn't realize things were going to get quite this tough, but I, but I, I have known that we, um, in my own experience, um, have been 
working with others to address these issues more effectively and have been leaning into my own um, mindfulness and contemplative practices to support me in this. And because I would get the feedback so often from others with whom I've been working, my students, folks that I work with in retreats and workshops, many people letting me know that this approach was helping them in some way and led me to the writing of the book. It took a while for me to write it and get it out there. It was a three-year project from proposal to book in hand, but um, I'm very, very glad that I was able to get it out uh, last September and have been on this journey, or I'm sorry, September 2019, and have been on this beautiful journey of sharing it with folks since then. Thanks. Oh, well, when I first knew you, you were integrating mindfulness into your law classes. I think you still are, but at USF, University of San Francisco. And mm -hmm. uh, one thing I learned about yeah. law, one thing I learned about yeah. law education from designing retreats for law students, you know, we're doing those retreats for Yale law students, was the importance of narrative. I'd never really... Yeah. But it makes total sense to me now, but I didn't, I hadn't really thought about narrative in relation to the law before. But can you talk about how that fits with why that's important in mindfulness and social justice uh, and the law? <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, there are just so many different ways to think about the role of narrative and story in law. Um, you know, on the one hand, even the most conventional lawyers in the world understand the importance of story to humankind, to, you know, our, to humanity's um, traditional means of making sense of the world. You know, we tell stories about it. And um, the role of an advocate, again, even the most traditionally conceived uh, way of thinking about that is to really, you know, is one in which um, telling stories and seeking to persuade by stories and seeking to, you know, um, again, help people make meaning of events through narrative. Um, that's all infused in what it means to be an advocate in any, in, in, in any sense of the word, I think. And yet for those of us who are particularly concerned about marginalized populations and communities who've suffered in our world, um, when we think about what that suffering looks like, the, for example, the maldistribution of resources for thriving, whether it be money, healthcare, education, respect, housing, um, the stories of those who are suffering the most in any given a system, political, economic, or social system, are often the stories that get marginalized, right? That's, that's a, in a way, how it is that marginality is constructed. We construct it through whose stories we tell and whose stories we don't. And so certainly in the work of social justice, whatever we may mean by that, and again, we may mean different things by that, but to the degree we are looking at this problem of maldistributed resources for thriving, um, really understanding what the consequences of that are, what harms result, 
the, the precise nature of the maldistribution, who's impacted, really requires that we open up to hearing the voices of the marginalized in their own words. And that goes counter to the dynamics of what I often think of as dominator culture, whether it's white supremacist culture or patriarchal culture or heteronormative culture, the dominator dynamics often involve squelching the stories of those who are suffering, you know, so to say, at the bottom of whatever balance we're talking about, whatever hierarchy we're looking at. And so certainly with regard to racism, the stories of African-Americans, indigenous people, people who, whose heritage links them to um, the, the, the region south of the U.S. border, um, Asian heritage folks encountering um, the challenges of, of, of a, you know, becoming um, U.S. citizens and, and contributing to the political community. Those particular stories are often not part of the dominant discourse. They're not part of, you know, how it is that we conceive of the good or the just. And so a lot of folks who care particularly about social justice make an extra effort to bring in the stories of those who have traditionally been marginalized under our system. And now how does that relate to doing the uh, inner work and mindfulness? Um, how, yeah. would that, how would that help you? Yeah. In, yeah. Well, yeah. So, yeah. Well, that's, and so, yeah. So, as we think about the value of these stories of those who've been marginalized, you know, um, part of what can be challenging is that, you know, a, the dominant discourse often, to the degree it doesn't recognize those stories. And to the degree that we've all encountered the dominant stories, when we hear the stories of the marginalized, we often, as human beings, um, find ourselves experiencing reactivity. Because again, to the degree the dominant story, the master narrative, you might say, is one, and literally we use that phrase master narrative you know, with some trepidation because it's loaded. It's a loaded term. But what we're talking about is that story that is most often told when we think of American history, the triumphalism that goes with it, the exceptionalism, how it is that we um, tend to tell the, the story of the victors in history and therefore those who have been conquered, those who have been marginalized aren't part of it. So then when we start to finally open up to hearing the stories of the marginalized, we often can find ourselves, you know, reacting in very human ways, feeling cognitive dissonance with what the social psychologists describe as cognitive dissonance. This sense that what I'm hearing isn't consistent with what I know. Therefore, how can it be true? Mm -hmm. Therefore, despite any any reference to actual facts, right? Despite the truth as the facts would tell us or that his, as the historical record would verify, we just feel uncomfortable around it and therefore resist taking it in. And so, I mean, I think for me, you know, teaching law and as I still do in my class last, just last night, the class, one class that I teach around um, racism in American legal history at my law school, 
in, in even through to the class that we, we we had last night, we're looking at case law. We're looking at the stories that the judges have told to justify, for example, taking the land from Native American people through property law and through the law of conquest, um, taking and, and justifying the taking of land from Mexican heritage people after the war with Mexico um, in the 19th century and the interpretations of law that justified that. When we look at all those things, it's hard to take it in that this is who we, who we have been historically. And it's it's really hard to hear the grievances that, mm. you know, um, communities who suffer feel. And so mindfulness can really help with you know, noticing, recognizing the reactivity and down-regulating it so that we can actually hear one another. And from that place of listening to each other's divergent stories, see more of what there is to see. Uh, and from that expanded perception, ideally discern wiser actions that mm. might minimize the suffering going forward. So to me, yeah, it's really an important aspect of how we, you know, mindfulness practices and compassion practices, right, are really, really essential because we're human beings encountering these stories. And, you know, we, we've learned enough from the neuroscientists, neurobiologists, cognitive, psycholo cognitive psychologists to know that human beings suffer when they encounter change and transformation, right? On the one hand, we think of change yeah. and transformation as such a good thing. We all want to be changed and transformed. Mm -hmm. Actually, no, we <laughs> struggle with that. And so mindfulness and compassion, I think, can be really, really helpful <laughs> as we com confront and listen to stories that challenge our sense mm -hmm. of reality. Yeah. Has it been helpful for your students? Do you, what do they tell you? Because they must be going through a lot these days. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, first of all, you have you yeah. have lots of I students. Mean, you have lots of students yes. of color in your class, right? So yeah. there's that. And then of course everything has been compounded. I do. By I do. Yes. Yeah, you know, it's it's such a difficult time in so many ways for all of us in different ways, right? And uh, some of that we all share in common and some we're just, you know, we're experiencing again from our unique positions and, and backgrounds. Uh, and so, yeah, my students, even again, just last night, we, 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 we were reflecting on some of these, you know, stories of the legacies of, um, uh, those we tend to describe as, you know, Latinos today, but, you know, this is a very diverse group of people from many different subcultures and um, a group of people whose heritages in California intersect with indigenous people here as well. So very radically diverse, as frankly, any of these racialized groups really are when you pause and unpack them whatever label we're talking about, whether Asian Americans, whites, Latinos, very, very radically diverse um, subgroups and the experiences sort of um, reduced and um, often uh, amalgamated in ways that really um, 
you miss a lot <laughs> of what was really going on. But so we're talking about some of the ways that um, uh, Latino heritage, uh, if you will, uh, ex uh, experience um, is not often made a part of the dominant conversation in traditional legal spaces, right? We might think of those who hail from Mexico um, only when we're talking about, you know, immigration policy or only when we're talking about, um, you know, trying to enhance inclusivity in our legal spaces. But to speak about uh, the experience of folks whose heritage connects up with Mexico and other countries south of the U.S. border um, is so rare, relatively rare in our um, law school classes that the students were describing just the sense of, um, you know, trepidation. They're not used to sharing their stories because they're not used to create being in spaces where people want to hear or care to hear. Um, and, um, you know, we're practicing in that class, a practice that I write about in the book called rotating the center of our concern, which is a way I suggest that we might from our own, recognize that we're all coming into this conversation from very diverse backgrounds. And we have our own particular center of positionality and the types of things that we think are very important based on our experience and our predispositions and predilections. But other folks in the room may, again, by virtue of their background, have a very different set of stories as very different histories. And we need to be able to allow in multiracial, multicultural settings, um, uh, kind of a this sort of flow of centering and decentering, so that sometimes we spend the whole night listening to stories um, that reflect the the African American experience. For example, sometimes we spend we may spend disproportionately our time in class listening to stories, as we did last night, that reflect more of you know, what we might call the Latino heritage experience in America. And we're rotating the center of our concern in that sense um, and developing a practice for that. And my students are, they are so unused to having the support to do that, mm -hmm. that it's both illuminating and they're very drawn in. They really appreciate it. But it can also be destabilizing and challenging for them, especially when I invite folks to to kind of practice both and as they go, like recognizing our particular experiences and the value of them, but also touching into our common humanity and um, practicing with uh, you know, seeing the com complex reality, which is all of that is happening all at once, that we have these important particular experiences, but at the same time, we're also, you know, having a very human experience that we can all identify with. And so um, they appreciate it very much. They're there every, you know, class. I have never have a problem with attendance in this class. Um, but I think it's also, you know, can be challenging, can be challenging because, you know, basically a lot of folks are saying, I'm finally getting to tell my story. And now is at that moment in this mm -hmm. class, I now have to also, you know, um, open to commonality and shifting to somebody <laughs> else's story. So it can be a lot because, and that's mostly because we don't do it enough, right? We just don't do it enough. Mm. That's so good. I mean, 
I was just right there in that classroom imagining. Um, yes, you're, you're brave. I mean, really, because I know it just took me back to when I worked in Guatemala and, um, you know, people there in those years are recovering from this terrible violence. And they um, and the government, uh, you know, had a totally different narrative, which was that it didn't happen. And um, they just... They wanted people to know. They weren't even asking for help. Yeah. They just wanted people to know what happened. And they would tell their stories. And it was profound. I mean, yes. just saying them out loud was uh, a, yes. a really uh, profound experience. Very liberating. Yeah. yeah. Um, gosh. Exactly. And they're also... You know, it's sad, too, because um, there's always these multiple currents of emotions happening, right? Always, of course. Whenever two human beings are together, there are multiple currents of emotion yeah. happening. We often, you know, uh, right? Don't acknowledge it. We've got this mask of, like, how we show up and all of the different things that are going on beneath, behind the mask are obviously often not shared. But in that class, we're really working to deepen our emotional intelligence as as we we learn um, as a support for our learning. And so to see the students really, you know, acknowledging the, the joy of telling their stories, also the poignancy of recognizing that part of the struggle of the marginalized is that there are, there are histories that have been, as you're describing in your experience with the Guatemala and people that you were working with, there, when histories have been erased often, the histories of the marginalized, actually, many of our histories are so piecemeal. And so people want to tell their stories, but they're also realizing what they don't know, feeling some shame about all of mm -hmm. that, some some anger, some some uh, sadness, right, about the history that's lost and never to be recovered. So there's always a lot in the room. Always, always, mm -hmm. always so much in the room. And um, just, this is another reason why for me, bringing space, bringing reverence, silence, mm -hmm. right? So that we're able to pause with the power of what it is that we're trying to do and the, the kind of the quality of healing that's mm -hmm. also wanting to be experienced as we're telling these stories, right? Because the wounding, the piece of this that's about like sharing a wound um, or talking from the place of the sense of having been wounded by all of this. We're not just telling stories. We're telling stories that have a measure of a pain point, at least <laughs> you have some measure of pain in them. And so to that degree, part of what people are witnessing is an, a storytelling effort that may or may not contribute to some healing. Yes. Some reckoning, some, you know, shifting in the relationship or the framing, the way we hold those stories. And so that that quality of healing is also often sort of in the room as well. And part of what I like to do in the classes that I facilitate is really create create some spacious capacity to reckon, recognize that that's part of what's going on and to have a sense of tender appreciation for that aspect of it as well. Yeah, that's beautiful. Tender appreciation and space is 
so important in terms of uh, mm -hmm. being able to witness your story and not be totally identified with it. That seems like mindfulness really helps with that. Right. I, I, I was. Uh, yes, 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 yes. Mm, I was listening uh, to the other day to uh, Jason Reynolds. He's a friend, but he's all, you know his name because he took um, Ingram Kendi's book on anti-racism and he remixed it, as he said, for young adults, called it Stamped. Um, it's so good. Mm -hmm. I mean, I love the way mm -hmm. he talks to young people and, and he makes it all so possible. Um, but he talks about um, uh, anti-racism, which worries a lot of people these days. Like, you know, I'm not a racist, so, you know, now I have to be anti-racist, <laughs> that one. So um, he, um, but he, it's great. He said that it's yeah. not a fixed achievement. It's not you don't get a medal when you get there. It's not a. It's not rigid. It is not a state, but a way of being. That it's right. a process that you bring to every moment where you're listening and questioning and responding. And that seems exactly. that sounds just like mindfulness yep. practice. I mean, um, does that sound right to you? Thank <laughs> you. <It is. laughs> Yeah, I mean, and exactly why I wrote the book too, right? To sort of help disrupt any kind of notion of this aspect of our, you know, work, this sort of, um, these efforts we engage in around equity, social justice, anti-racism. You know, I think we can tend to want to take a class, do some project, get a seal of approval <laughs> as you know, anti-racist or, mm -hmm. you know, woke or whatever, yeah. whatever the current label is. And I, I mean, you know, my book, my, my project is very aligned in that sense with, with Jason Reynolds project. And so far as really what it is that um, I think we're called to do is see this as a way of being in the world. And um, for those of us who practice mindfulness uh, as a way in which to fully engage our practice. And just as we pick, you know, our, we, we, our practice invites us to kind of pick up and, 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 and really embrace a way of being to, to sort of move from the cushion and into the world uh, informed by and supported by and uh, formed by uh, our, our practice commitments you know, this to me is um, why it is that mindfulness is such a perfect technology for working with racism and, you know, and, and other forms of isms, but certainly racism. This is a part of our everyday life. It's going to arise and show up in different ways throughout our lives. Um, how do we meet it? Um, uh, how do we work to disrupt the you know the re, the ever present dynamics by which we might reinscribe racial hierarchy, um, and how do we see this as a part of our 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 way of being in the world as opposed to as um, some thing we want to check check a, a, a box we want to check 
that we've done it and we've achieved it and we are now, you know, confident. It's not that it's not about that. <laughs> it's about a way of being in the world. Mm. Thank you. That's, uh, that's really helpful. Right? And it's a challenging yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah. And anybody can do it. I mean, mm. we're going through the Thank world you. anyhow. Why not go through mindfully, mindfully about <laughs> racial justice <laughs> as well as mindful about everything else that you're paying attention to? Mm. Right. That's so true. You know, and I was reflecting on how. What's that? Yeah, just you can't see me. I can see you for everyone out there. Yeah. And (laughs) but I'm not I'm nodding my head and smiling as if you could see me. But just wanted to share that with you. Mm. <laughs> yeah it's you know it's a lot and that's one of the reasons why you know I, I think compact this sort of when I say compassion for me it is that will to alleviate suffering you know it's not pity certainly it's it's not uh empathy right just feeling putting yourself in the shoes of another and feeling with although that's a part of it it's, it's feeling with having that empathic resonance, but it's also the will to take some action to mm-hmm. minimize suffering. And, and I think because there's often so much suffering, so much suffering woven into how we are with each other in the world. And, um, you know, the part that's about race is, you know, obviously intersectional or intersects with every other aspect of our human experience. And so, you know, a lot of those who've been studying race and racism and inequality and inequity for, you know, decades, those who kind of created more or less the field of critical race theory and critiques of our dominant society that just name the reality that racism continues, right? This has been work that's been being done by scholars for decades, um, really since the academies, especially the legal academy, especially you know legal education was desegregated back in the 1960s and 70s and 80s, you started to have this the perspective of people who were non-white basically starting to show up in um, legal scholarship. And there was created this field called critical race theory that is you know, part of, which is now spread to education, anthropology, sociology, different fields in the U.S. and across the world. That field is at the root of the work of people like Kendi, Ibram Kendi, and people like Michelle Alexander, Mm. and, um, you know, uh, Isabel Wilkerson. This critical race theory work is, uh, again, preceding a generation's efforts to kind of wake us up. But one of the things I was reflecting on is that the critical race theorists actually didn't popularize the term anti-racist. And I think one of the reasons why um, is not so much only because we were mostly law folks who were talking, speaking to anti-discrimination, which was the way that law was talking about it. But it was also the fact that many of the critical race theorists saw race intersecting with all of these other isms, racism intersecting with sexism, you know, patriarchy, heteronormativity, et cetera. And they use this 
kind of fancy term anti-subordination because what they saw were like interlocking dynamics by which certain people were subordinated and it wasn't just about race but it was about race yes. it wasn't just about gender but it was about gender and so really the, the call there was to just look at the various intersectional ways that certain groups are you know systematically um you know denied the resources necessary for thriving and how the subordinating dynamics may look different in one situation and in one place today than it is tomorrow might you know there's a lot of variation in other words that we want to consider and so you know for years uh, before uh, the recent wave of anti-racist scholarship and, and activism some of us were kind of quietly using this this idea of anti-subordination as an inspiration for our work but not talking about it because we knew most people, if we said, well, we're trying to be anti-subordinationist, people would say, what? <laughs> <laughs> so um, I just say that because especially in this period, <laughs> especially in this sort of Black History Month period, I kind of want to oh, name right. these historical antecedents to what it is that we're talking about today. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk let, what we're talking about today. Let's talk about love. How does it fit in here? I think you said that justice is love and action for the alleviation of suffering, which makes justice a verb. Um, but uh, let's talk about love a little yeah. bit, and then yes. we'll do the practice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> of course, yeah. Well, I, yeah, thank you for naming that um, definition of justice again for me. I, when I put a term like that out there or any term, frankly, I recognize that it's simply pointing towards some aspect of aspect of our lived experience. And we all have different terms we use and, you know, the both the thrill and the challenge of communicating uh, using language as humans is that we're always, you know, just pointing toward and past each other. And we need, in other words, to even have our conversational um the framing of the, the 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 opportunities and challenges of communicating through a mindfulness lens, right? One which sort of says, "Hey, I'm I'm actually gonna listen for understanding. I'm not going to necessarily need you to use exactly the words that I would use." And this kind of more open receptivity to the reality that human language is imprecise, how we're using it is imprecise, and that even as we want to. Um, you know, as part of this equity moment, this movement towards equity, raise our awareness of how we're using language and, you know, the inclusivity or not of the language. We also want to do that with some kindness, that with some love, right? So to me, the path that I've been privileged to enter in terms of mindfulness and compassion practices and um, as, a, as a kind of a set of commitments that I want to live um, reminds me that wherever we are trying to make a difference in the world, whether we call it doing racial justice or um, whatever, however we think of it, um, this 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 question of how is it that we want to engage with one another is really really crucial. Again, justice is not some noun; it's not something out there that we demand and. And it's measured in this specific, precise way, at least for me and at least from this perspective. The perspective I hold, right, that I'm offering in my work 
is one that has a lot in common with the teachings of people like Gandhi and Martin Martin Luther King Jr. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. famously as well used this idea of love as part of his definition of justice, mm-hmm. right? Uh, for Martin Luther King, justice was, you know, love correcting that which would stand against love, right? Or power, actually, mm-hmm. power correcting that which stands against love, right? And so a kind of loving power, you know, correcting that which is standing against love um, was how it is that he was seeking to kind of, you know, take this, what can be kind of a hallmarky kind of notion of love and really give it this sort of fierce public stance and a public role um, and to name that as, as really the foundation of what he was doing in the realm of civil and human rights and that intersection that Martin Luther King certainly was about between racism, um, uh, capitalism, and militarism, right? The, at the end of his life, he basically was just talking about, again, the various ways we subordinate and, and, and squelch human dignity that any one of us can be vulnerable to. So, um, you know, again, I'm drawing on folks like that, um, and Mandela, even uh, uh, Colin Kaepernick today, who, who's recently described how, um, you know, his work is motivated as well by love. Mm -hmm. So this kind of fierce love that is about Mm -hmm. recognizing that we all deserve, we all deserve decent, humane, frankly, loving treatment. We do. And, Mm -hmm. you know, often we can't give it to others because we haven't received it enough. Uh, and to me, um, Therefore, when we think about what justice might look like, um, I want to offer this idea of it looking like what love looks like in public and racial justice looking like that and really looking at ways that we can bring this sort of approximation of care uh, to bear on all of our experiences in service of minimizing the harms of racism that impact all of us. They don't, mm-hmm. these harms don't impact us all equally or evenly, but we're all being harmed by racism actually in different ways. And so to me, really seeing that and really feeling the pain of that and then wanting to respond in ways that ultimately minimize the suffering going for it. We don't want to just exchange places with people as part of what we call so-called justice work. Like right, and suddenly now we have different people um, in positions of power lording over other people. Yeah. That to me is not what justice is about. But it is about imagining a world and, and living our way every day as best we can into that world. Wherein we are um, creating the capacity for love to be realized, for, uh, for, for human thriving across our experiences of different identities to be realized, for all of us to feel safe enough uh, to, you know, really feel our inherent belonging on the planet that we all share. And so to me, those are the kind of big frames that I use for this work, the work that I call justice. And so love is really at the center of it that L word <laughs> that I have been boldly bringing into my writings about law for years. Um, and, um, and we'll always do, we'll always do that. <laughs> I do that even in my classes. I think finding that appropriate way to, uh, to make caring visible 
Hmm. Again, non-exploitative, right? Non, um, you know, we don't, we're not, it's not about um, abuse of power or any, anything, abusive identity relationships or any of that. But it is about, that is a question. Why is it in the English language? We don't really have the kind of word we might want to come up with to capture this kind of public-facing, non-exploitative, non-transactional care that we're talking about here. And that, to me, is really one of the challenges of our time. Oh, that's so beautiful. Makes me wish I were 10 years old so I could start over again <laughs> and commit myself totally and fully. <laughs> well, we need to start it right now, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Just, I mean, we can always, thank goodness we're starting every moment, again, right? Yes. And we're like living our way into that because that's the other piece of my work. It's really about recognizing that um, as we live each day, we can enact what I call a kind of a form of personal justice. It's not all of what justice is, but it is to say that we're not waiting for some specific outcome in the world or policy before we can say, yes, justice is here. It's here in how we are with ourselves, how we are with each other, um, how we, again, enact policies and, and sort of choose you know, how to live and work in the world. And, and yes, that can involve uh, efforts that engage the collectivity, engage our national community, our local community, et cetera, et cetera, in policymaking and lawmaking. But um, it must start with where we are. It must start with how we treat ourselves and each other. And so that personal and that interpersonal uh, dimension of justice interlocks, it seems to me, with whatever systemic vision of justice we might have. If we aren't really taking steps to ground ourselves in a kind of way of being with our own little broken hearts and each other's broken hearts and, you know, efforts in the world. If we aren't taking steps to be present to each other and to our lives and to relate to all that is from a deeper place, then it's hard for me to imagine what kind of policy or law could ever really get us there. So, it's, so this is why I think of justice as being um, not just about care made visible in a certain sense through public policy and enactments that we uphold together, but also this multidimensional project that includes how we are with ourselves, how we are with each other, and how we relate to these collective and systemic pro projects and institutions in our world. Beautiful and perfect, perfect way to move from that, which I watched you with um, um, John Kedzen and, um, oh, uh, what's his name? <laughs> uh, who said? Um, Is it said, the one with Anderson Cooper? Anderson Cooper, yes, I love him. And, he's, and, and he said, Rhonda, you're blowing my mind. That <laughs> was so funny. But um, that was a perfect <laughs> ending. <laughs> um, and would you lead a practice for us now? I love this practice that's in the book. And yeah. it's, just, it's just one of, of many. Yeah. Um, and they're all yeah. fabulous. <laughs> so, but this one's really special. 
Thank you. No, yeah, and it's so right on to your theme. It happens to be the practice that concludes the chapter that I entitled Walking Each Other Home. Oh, I didn't Um, even realize that. (laughs) Yeah, it really is. And it's partly because, you know, it's so interesting, that coincidence, right? It's like, for me, um, you know, the liberating potential of the practices is like, like how it is that we might feel a sense of freedom. It's kind of like coming home or, or feeling our way into our inherent belonging as so-called individuals, but also as a, as a human community that we might look upon with the moral imagination we bring to the sense of family. And so this practice um, I'll offer now, and for those who are listening, if you'll join me in this, the invitation is to uh, pause right here, right where you are, and um, find a place where you can settle in for a few minutes and take your seat. And by taking your seat, that might be standing, right? It might literally mean sitting if you're going to engage in this from a seated posture. But it really just means this pausing and feeling your connection to the earth. So perhaps feeling feet on the floor, points of contact between the body and the the planet that we actually all share every moment of our lives, including this one. So breathing in and breathing out from this place of allowing a sense of awareness of the body resting on the ground, on the earth. Feeling the sense of the body as a whole in contact with the earth. As you breathe in and out, again, feeling the breath as part of the atmosphere that we're breathing and part of, again, what we all share. Breathing in and out and feeling the natural peace that can come from resting in connection with this beautiful planet. So as you breathe in and out, feeling a sense of belonging right here, right now what we call gravity, this force that really is holding us, uh, allowing us to feel a sense of connectedness to the earth. So see if perhaps on the next in-breath, sensing into what is well within you. And on the next out-breath, maybe relaxing just a little bit more into the sense of connectedness with the earth in this moment. And from this place of feeling the sense of the body resting on the earth. Invite the sense of the mind resting on the body right here, right now, by inviting a focus for the next few moments on the sensations of breathing. As you sit or stand or lie down, feeling the sensations of breathing in and breathing out really resting in those sensations. Maybe feeling a little bit of the joy of just resting and being alive in your body right now, the gift of this moment. 
And now if you could call to mind in this next phase of the practice together, an image, and um, I wanna invite you to work with these images as best you can and with care, because um, we all have so many different experiences around some of the concepts that I'm gonna offer for this meditation. So as always, you are your own best teacher and guide. And if there's a way that you want to um, interpret the phrases that I'm using that support your journey, you are of course invited to, to do so. But I want us to invite a sense of the mother in us, calling to mind our particular mothers, if that is an image that we can bear in this moment. Even if you were not able to grow up with your mother or even if your relationship with your own mother was a difficult one, or again, if you're in some sense only able to call forth folks who may have represented the mother image and in, in, in energy in your life or a mother figure in your life. The invitation is with as much love and care and compassion as possible. Call forth this image of the mother in you. And really imagine this being this person with as much detail as you can bear or would like to invite in this moment. And from that image, see if you can as well imagine going a generation back and thinking about your mother's mother or your mother figures, mother figures, right? We're inviting this sense of a lineage, walking back from ourselves through to that human being who brought us into the world or who nurtured us as children or whose nurturing energy supports us in this moment, that mother figure, and imagining the, the figures who brought her into existence and nurtured her and supported her. So now we're moving back through the generations. Imagine going back now again, maybe to another generation, to the grandmothers, grandmothers, right? Through generations and generations, imagine. Again, many of us don't know the names of our ancestors beyond maybe even one generation. So with kindness to whatever, for whatever is coming up for you in this moment, for most of us at a certain point, we just don't have concrete details. So this invites a kind of imagination, a imagining of the generations that have come before. Imagine going back hundreds of years and thousands of years, then perhaps tens of thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years. At a certain point, it becomes hard to literally imagine. But as best we can imagine coming back and back and back to our common ancestral mother, the person that anthropologists and geneticists say uh, or tend to agree was a single female ancestor connecting all living human beings the ancestor that all human beings on the planet today 
may share in common. It's hard to even imagine that, that being. But just imagine, as best you can, a sense that you, as you sit here today, you lie where you are, you stand where you are, are connected back to the generations, to a common ancestor that all humanity shares. Now, imagine, imagine if you might, what that common ancestor might think if she were able to survey human history in all of the eons and eons from the place of her existence up through into today. Imagine looking over human history from the point of view of our shared ancestor. Imagine her resting on the problems that we face today. What is it that you'd imagine our common um, ancestor might think about our, the problems that we face as a human collectivity? How would she feel watching us suffer and struggle the way we're suffering and struggling on this beautiful earth? What might she be thinking? Ah, what might she be sensing? And so imagine this ancestor being able to sort of gesture to you in this moment. Just imagine it if you can. And imagine she's gesturing you to come closer and she wants to deliver you a message. She wants to share a message with you in this moment. In this moment of multiple interlocking pandemics, where with climate, the threat of climate change and so many different pressures, humanity is struggling. Wherever we are, we are struggling. I am struggling right here with you. And so I'm doing this meditation right with you, imagining our common ancestor gesturing to me with a message. One that she wants to share with, with you, with me, and one that we might be able to share with others in the struggle for justice today, tomorrow, and throughout our journey from here. Lean in. What is the message that our common ancestor, we might say our great mother, our great-great-mother in our human past, way back in the human past, eons ago, looking at us today. What is the message she might give you? Maybe there would be a different message for each of us. And imagine that this message for you might be your original medicine to offer as we struggle through the challenges of our time. Lean in. What is that message? Lean in and listen. Listening to that message here, see what's coming forth. See if you can receive that message and imagine 
really meditating on it or inquiring into how you might share this message as part of your journey from here. As we do so, it may be that each of us may play a part in helping us find our way back to a sense of our inherent belonging within this radically diverse, radically challenged human community that just might be one big human family that's forgotten who we are and forgotten our way home. So just taking a few moments now to maybe capture, allow one word or phrase or image from this meditation to land as perhaps a way of thinking about what that message might be for you, supporting you as you inquire further. Breathing in and out. And now allowing whatever images or thoughts that have come up for you to just dissolve, they will be there for you should you choose to come back to this inquiry. And just picking up on the in-breath or the out-breath, once again, turning toward the sensations of breathing and sitting, lying, or standing on the earth, wherever you are right now. Feeling the goodness in your heart. and offering kindness to you as you experience this moment and all that you are. Sensing into the way in which as you move forward from this moment of meditation, some of the deep compassion at the heart of this practice, this will to alleviate suffering that includes ourselves but extends beyond leaning into that deep compassion as we transition out of this meditation. And if the eyes have been closed, the invitation is to open them. And in whatever way feels right, consciously shift from that moment of guided meditation into Readiness for engagement right where you are right now. Thank you for the practice. Thank you, Rhonda. That was so beautiful. I just loved it. Ah, and I learned something new also. I'm, it's a secret. <laughs> but, um, oh, and for... For everyone who's been with us, thank you also. And uh, you can go back to the Be Here Now Network page and find more information about Rhonda's book and other references. The book, as I said, is called The Inner Work of Racial Justice. So... Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Rhonda. Thank you. Thank you so much. Love you. Love you, too. Bye. Well, be safe. Bye-bye. 
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H E L P.com slash be here now.